Welcome to the 11th episode of the Cornell Policy Review podcast. My name is Nida Mehmood and I am the editor in chief of the review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, I got to speak with Natalie Bridgman Fields, founder and executive director of Accountability Council, to discuss the impact of internationally financed projects on local communities and their environment and Accountability Council's work advocating for greater transparency in accountability offices around the world. Hey Natalie, thank you so much for joining the Cornell Policy Review today. It's a pleasure to have you speaking with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, before we start off, could you tell us a little bit about who you are, the Accountability Council's vision, and your role, as well as what brought you to this work? Sure. My name is Natalie Bridgman-Fields, and I'm the founder and director of Accountability Council, and I'm a graduate of Cornell University, class of 1999. And I really began my journey to this work starting at Cornell when I was an undergraduate learning about uh, international law, human rights, environmental justice issues through my coursework, but also during the summers. Um, and then the Cornell and Washington program was a really foundational experience for me in 1998 when I did a pivotal internship at the Center for International Environmental Law. And it was at that time that I really started to learn about the impact of development banks and development finance on causing human rights and environmental abuses abroad in the places where they mm -hmm. conduct their activity. And so that really sparked an interest that's led to a, a lifelong passion. That sounds great. That's quite interesting that you had such an early start um, from your undergraduate. But now Accountability Council has impacted policy and practice on a global scale. So what are some of the challenges that the organization faces when altering strategies to accommodate the needs of communities from different parts of the world? And um, sure. how, mm -hmm. if at all, do the differing contexts and policy systems impact your work or your approach to your work? Sure. Well, uh, briefly, from that, that time in 1998, learning about uh, the accountability offices, which are tied to development finance, I found that a, a particularly compelling strategy. And what I learned in the decade or so after that experience was that um, these accountability offices provide a very unique opportunity to equal the opportunity for communities who have grievances to reach decision makers and help their voice be heard to address grievances around human rights and environmental abuses. So while mm -hmm. that strategy was being developed by the creation of these accountability offices within development institutions and bilateral export promotion agencies like the Overseas Private Investment Corporation uh, through the regional yeah. development banks, as those accountability offices were developing, there wasn't a legal community building up at the same time commensurate to that, that new opening to support mm -hmm. communities to use those accountability offices effectively. So what we've done at Accountability Council is challenge ourselves to be available to communities as just that, as a way to make sure that communities around the world have legal support to understand that they have the right to complain when a development finance institution or any other source of finance has contributed to an impact that's causing a human rights or environmental impact. They have the right to file a complaint to these accountability offices, which are quasi-independent, so they're part of the mm -hmm. institutions that finance the activity that cause harm, uh, but they're not part of the decision-making around each particular investment or the due diligence around a particular uh, project. Rather, the accountability offices exist solely to receive these citizen-driven complaints. They do either dispute resolution 
or compliance investigations, and then they report the findings to the institution's board of directors or president. So it's a really incredible opportunity to have a, a near direct voice to the decision makers at the end of the process. And for dispute resolution, it's a chance for a local community who's harmed to be able to get into a very substantive conversation very quickly through a mediated neutral process with either the company or the government institution that's that's related to the investment uh, to substantively discuss how to address the concerns, whether they be human rights violations or abuses that are feared or that have already transpired. So to answer your question, we we do this through three different approaches. We have our, our group of community lawyers. We're now um, in South Asia. We have a group in San Francisco that work globally, and we're building out an Africa office to directly respond at the request of communities to their need for support in understanding the process and then help to use it effectively. Uh, and then we assume that this system is only as good as advocates demand that it be. So we really uh, take seriously this policy obligation to make sure that the existing accountability offices are independent and fair and transparent and effective for communities and that we look for gaps. So, for example, in the, in the last couple of years, uh, we've done a lot of work on the U.S. Export-Import Bank, which is a bilateral mm-hmm. export promotion agency that had no accountability office. Now they have the beginning of one. We've done quite a lot of advocacy there to make that so. Um, and another um, example is with impact investing, where currently people harmed by an impact investment have no forum to raise a grievance if that investment has caused harm, and we're working to change that uh, with a leading group of impact investors. So those are some examples from our policy work. And then finally, our research department is responsible for identifying the trends in the field, understanding patterns, understanding where the field is going, which accountability offices work best, which need the most um, advocacy to make them meet these best best practice principles. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, But we have a a massive database that we're very excited to launch at the end of 2018 where investors, advocates, communities, the decision makers at these institutions can review all 1,300 or so cases ever brought to every accountability office uh, and understand what's happened and and really see the the patterns live for themselves. So it's a a quick overview of of how we work and what we do. Mm -hmm. That uh, definitely looks like something worth looking forward to. Before we start on discussing your policy initiative on impact investing, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your research process. The way you describe your work, it definitely seems like an intersection of different fields and especially, you know, the concerns of the communities, the the data that you collect there. So could you give us an overview of your translational research process where the data from your research and how you talk to communities is then converted to policy that is more formalized for Mm -hmm. these institutions that you're working with? Absolutely. So the value of having the communities program, the policy program, and the research program all in-house at Accountability Council is that they all feed one another. So as we're learning from our communities program cases, so if we have a group of nomadic herders in Mongolia that we're supporting through dispute resolution with a World Bank process, and then we're also working in Mexico with um, a dispute resolution for uh, indigenous communities harmed by an OPIC, Overseas Private Investment Corporation Finance Project, we can see different Mm -hmm. policy issues arise. And then our policy team can take those and make sure that any lessons that are about things that should be solvable from a policy perspective, they can campaign on those. So the policy department in-house is able to take those that learning and make sure that it's not wasted and that it turns into systemic level change. But at the same time, that, that specific information about each case is funneled to our research department 
to see Mm -hmm. what the outcome is of a particular case, how it's worked through the process, and then also take our kind of original data that we're creating through our cases and compare it and contrast it to the whole field um, for ourselves Mm -hmm. to understand what's going on with our own organization, but then also importantly, and to your point, to understand um, what's going on in every single other case. And the benefit from our field is that we do have this expectation of transparency in terms of the reporting out from these accountability offices of what happens. So there are currently mm-hmm. accountability office databases that each institution's accountability office run and publish, but there's no central repository. There's no central database where you could look up uh, every complaint, for example, that has to do with agribusiness or every complaint that has to do with forced displacement um, the, mm-hmm. that you would have to go to many, many different sources to collate that information together. So we've created um, an, a really sophisticated system of scrapers, and then we also have a lot of time put into making sure that all the information is submitted in a format that can be compared um, so that there's some mm-hmm. research uh, into the rigor behind how that reporting is going, and then we're able to take our own cases and those from the databases and really have a robust um, repository of these cases at this point. And then this database, it would um, presumably be helpful to see trends on a larger scale and perhaps make your work more effective. Is that also part Absolutely. of uh, the utility of the database? Absolutely. And not just our work more effective, but really it's it's for so many different stakeholders. So you can imagine if you're an investor looking to invest in a solar project in East Africa, um, you could look at yeah. what are all the complaints ever filed to any accountability office regarding an, any energy project just generally in that region or in Africa generally. Uh, and then that would really guide an investor's ability to do due diligence. And maybe there isn't a robust due diligence process that that investor uses, but at least it could come up with questions that would need to be asked of an operator to understand whether they're accounting for those risk factors, which we would we would argue are high given that there are complaints that have been filed uh, about those issues previously. So that's an example. For our own work, we're able to see that there's, there's still only about 20% of the cases that are, are getting a substantive result out of the process. So there are all kinds of reasons why. And we have some hypotheses mm-hmm. uh, within our own um, organization that we're testing. And so we can look at then what are the policies and practices of the accountability offices and do they account for some of that differentiation between some of the accountability offices contributing to that that 20% uh, have a higher rate of number of cases leading to a substantive result and, and some have a lower. And so looking at why uh, based on a statistical analysis, that's another incredibly important feature of that work so that our policy team and the colleagues around the world that we have, that we we collaborate with very closely, that we can make really informed um, policy recommendations based on this data. Wow, that seems like a great resource to borrow from, and it's a great contribution for people who are interested in researching or Mm -hmm. even being practitioners of public policy and public administration. So this definitely is a great contribution. But now heading back to impact investment, which you mentioned earlier, your organization has recently begun a policy initiative on impact investment uh, with the goal of ensuring that communities affected by impact investments have a forum to raise concerns and remedy harm. What type of projects does Accountability Council categorize under the impact investment initiative? Yeah, we're not seeking to create a definition ourselves, rather use the definition mm-hmm. that investors themselves are using. Really, the scope of our organization's work is is all capital uh, that, that flows across the value that can, can cause harm, social or environmental human rights harm. And as mm-hmm. we've looked at the complaints that have come to us from communities seeking redress, 
what's clear is that harm is agnostic to the form of capital. So that we see development finance, um, pure private finance, private equity, um, export promotion agencies, bilateral finance, and impact investment as a subset of private finance all can cause the same type of human rights or environmental abuses to the extent the financing is all going to places where there's an issue of a marginalized community that may have less of a voice in decision-making and policy um, at the mm-hmm. national, local, uh, regional level. They're not being consulted um, about the decisions that are affecting them. And then there's an, there are risk factors there that need to be addressed. And it, it doesn't matter where the capital is coming from, those risk factors are present. So our work is really to democratize the access to justice across the levels of um, investment going around the world to make sure that communities have a voice in addressing those grievances. So what we've seen from impact investment is um, a complaint regarding, for example, a biomass project in Liberia that was sold explicitly as an impact investment by a private foundation with investment from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. And that's a complaint that we were able to bring only because the Overseas Private Investment Corporation does have an accountability office that we've worked extensively on on, on our policy work. Um, but that allowed those communities to file that complaint. If they hadn't received investment from OPIC, from that U.S. agency, uh, they would not have been able to file that complaint. So that's an example where um, the biomass project caused a a complete devastation of the livelihoods of local farmers, charcoalers, and and workers, where um, the project ultimately failed uh, based on a number of complex factors, but one of which was the failed social and environmental due diligence into the project. So we want to make sure that the lessons about that case and the many, many similar cases like that um, are are used not only to remediate harm in an individual case, but are used to make systemic change to avoid those problems from happening in the first place. And we think the impact investment community as as a whole, you know, it's very diverse. It's made up of public and private um, actors. It's made up of um, large foundations, individual investors. And across the board, what they have in common is the desire to use the capital for good, for some social or environmental benefit to society, Mm -hmm. to humanity, to the environment. So we think there's a high leverage opportunity here to make sure that the impact investment community is aware that there are tools for community-based, community-driven grievances to reach them. So development finance for 20 years, 25 years, has had these established accountability offices, but impact investors haven't had them at all. And they're, they're, uh, there are none currently that have established an accountability office. So we want to make sure that impact investors are aware that that's a tool that's available to them to incorporate into their lending practices, their lending ecosystem, um, and that they don't need to reinvent the wheel, but they can also innovate and they can also create a more efficient way of doing it. Uh, if they, they take advantage of the collective action networks that they already have, um, there are a number of networks of impact investors that focus on either types of impact capital, uh, types of issue areas, types of regions they invest in. Those network hubs would be an ideal place to locate an accountability office or a, mm-hmm. a community-driven feedback mechanism, and we, we hope that that will come to be. That sounds great. And focusing more on the feedback mechanism and the the platforms or avenues that communities have to make their voices more visible. What kind of strategies does Accountability Council employ to achieve that visibility for the community? What strategies have been maybe successful in the past with other projects Mm -hmm. that you might continue with the impact investment field or are there new strategies? So how does that work? Right. Well, for the communities that we serve, we typically first, the, the first process 
process is after we get a request from a community, the first thing we do is listen. So we try to understand what is already happening in that community in terms of awareness raising. Typically, there's been already a pre-existing uh, attempt to raise the grievance either locally or internationally. And often we find that the accountability office complaint process can serve as a catalyzing spark to what's already been happening. We advise the communities that we work with to never see an accountability office complaint as a sole way of achieving their goals. It should be part of a larger campaign for justice. For example, we had this case in Mexico that I mentioned. This is a case of indigenous communities who were deeply fearful that a hydroelectric project in their area of Oaxaca was going to destroy the stream that they relied on for drinking water, for fishing as a cultural resource. Uh, and they had no project information. They knew that construction was beginning, the groundwater was starting to get contaminated, there were cracks in the houses from blasting, and it was next to this earthen dam that was not being monitored by the Mexican government, which had trees growing out of it. So really serious safety, mm -hmm. dam safety concerns and, and water concerns. And then the use of the land was an issue as well. So the communities didn't just file the accountability office complaint. They housed that in a campaign to make sure that there was awareness of what was going on. So that was the first thing they did is community organizing to make sure that the, there was widespread awareness of the risks of the project and then to invite people into what became a dispute resolution process between the communities and the company mediated by the Office of Accountability Mediator. And through that, they were also able to incorporate a number of incredibly important uh, strategies around the political leaders who had approved the project, who had let it go through without being attuned to these risk factors to make sure that they were witnesses to the dialogue. So the strategy wasn't overtly political, but it was inviting the political actors, the state, uh, the national, and also the local level political actors who had some jurisdiction over the, the environmental and social issues in this case to be present, to witness the dialogue process. That was an incredibly powerful technique. And then there was a lot of intense media coverage of this, um, both locally and also even at the national uh, level in Mexico that allowed, uh, again, the greater awareness building. So I think those strategies together, the organizing, the media, the political strategy, all led to an incredibly successful result where the communities were able to prevent harm in that particular case by showing the company that the site of the project was not an appropriate place to site that project that was compatible with the rights of the local people and with their environmental security. Mm -hmm. When you talk about communities, uh, you mentioned that there's usually a pre-existing attempt to bring attention to a certain issue. Um, what happens mm -hmm. In the absence of community awareness, does accountability council step in to bring that awareness and make people aware of their rights and the harms they might incur? Or do you wait for communities to reach out to you before you take any action or involvement in an issue? Great question. So we only work at the request of a community. And the reason is because these communities that we serve have typically not been asked about a project that has arrived and is causing harm, and we don't want to perpetuate the same um, kind of hierarchy or domination mm -hmm. in the form of communication or intervention in a community. We want to make sure we're a trusted and wanted and truly needed partner. So that request typically comes from a community that's been exposed to us or our work through a civil society organization locally. Um, the mm -hmm. communities who we work with are typically one or two degrees of separation from one of the, the members of Accountability Council's team. 
So oh. it, in Peru, for example, there was an, a very remote um, indigenous fishing village that was uh, two airplane rides and a prop plane and a boat ride and then a hike from the nearest wow. uh, major city. <laughs> and they found us yeah. through two degrees of separation. It was their indigenous federation that they contacted um, in the regional capital who then contacted one lawyer in Lima who knew us. So those are very typical ways for people to reach us through through tight-knit uh, networks and word of mouth. I should add, it is imperative, though, that those civil society organizations are aware that communities have the right to complain if their rights are violated, if, if there's been an international investment that's caused harm. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's not simply that we sit back and wait for requests. Our goal is to train those regional um, and international civil society organizations who in turn work with local and grassroots groups to make sure that the information is available, that they have they mm-hmm. have these these rights available and that this process is a form that they should consider as they're developing a campaign strategy to achieve a just result. So while we do wait for requests to come to us, we do also do trainings proactively to make sure that we're reaching people with the availability um, of access to communities to make sure that those communities are, are informed and aware when when an issue arises and, and they're prepared to consider these strategies. I can definitely understand and see the merit of proactively making people aware of their rights and letting them know that Accountability Council is one of the avenues through which they can voice their concerns, and it seems to be a successful process. This kind of a strategy is what you would be moving forward with the impact investment sector as well, uh, if I understand clearly. Well, with with impact investment, we're, we're at the point where this sits squarely in our policy work, because currently there are no accountability offices available um, for communities who are harmed by impact investment. So rather than do training and support with communities who have those grievances, we need to start with the investors themselves in establishing an accountability process. But uh, down the road, that would be one of the many accountability offices that we would be able to train on and help people understand how to use effectively. Um, but currently, it's it's squarely in the policy realm. Hmm. All right. Speaking of, you know, using different approaches um, where you deal with communities versus where you deal with the investors themselves. Uh, let's talk about the multilateral organizations. Considering that Accountability Council aims to hold multilateral organizations accountable to the people they serve, how do you navigate these institutions? Um, you know, how do you influence their their decision-making process, or does the council have an institutionalized presence in the global development process? Where would you start with that? Right. So the type of uh, um, activity that we have vis-a-vis these multilateral development banks is, of course, with their accountability offices. So that's the first point of contact is making sure that when communities do file a complaint that there's good communication back and forth between the accountability office staff and a community. So that's a formalized process that already exists. Should there be a problem that arises with an accountability office, for example, um, we, we see an issue with lack of independence or they're denying a complaint when it should have been eligible. So there's a, an, an issue with access um, or maybe a transparency issue there. That would be an example where we might speak directly to the accountability office staff. Uh, we might speak to the um, governance body that oversees the accountability office. So in the case of the World Bank, for example, if there's an issue with the World Bank inspection panel, what we've done in the past when we've seen issues like that arise are to, again, directly reach out to the inspection panel's own um, accountability team, discuss it, and then if needed, talk to the World Bank's board of directors who have oversight 
over the inspection panel. And the World Bank's Board of Directors is a political body. It's made up of the, the member nations who contribute to the World Bank. So they, there's a subscribed-in capital, and then they're also the borrowers of the World Bank's capital. So we would typically want to make sure that the committee who specifically oversees uh, the accountability function of the World Bank of that board is aware of an issue, um, and we would make sure that there's, um, you know, a, a direct voice of a community who's been harmed by perhaps a, a policy problem so that they can have a communication uh, directly to the decision makers to understand what might need to happen to, to fix the problem. Um, the other thing we do is try to make sure that the regional, uh, local and regional organizations uh, around the world uh, and international organizations are aware of issues when they arise because they can be very hard to see. This is a pretty niche field, even though it's deeply impactful in such an intersectional way, as you described. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's a problem with the lack of independence of an accountability office, it's often very hard for people to know that. So we see one of our jobs as to help our civil society peers um, know what's going on, make make sure they can ask their own questions, and then often they take issues up with their own governments, and those governments then feed into the decision-making of the World Bank's board through their governmental process. And and you spoke about organizations like the World Bank. Now, these are very large and often bureaucratic organizations. So do you find that it is, it is necessary for you to usually target uh, board members, or do you find that early on in the process in the organizational structure you have support and communication that is open and willing to accommodate accountability council's work or uh, policy recommendations? And how does uh, how has that experience been? Right. For any particular issue, we do need to tailor a communication strategy directly to um, that issue. So who is is the decision maker uh, on that particular Mm -hmm. issue? Sometimes it's a matter of just communicating back and forth with an accountability uh, office's staff. Um, But as I mentioned, the board of directors is an important body with oversight um, in that that one example of the the World Bank inspection panel. On the other side of the World Bank, at the the private lending arm of the IFC and the other private institutions within the bank, they report to the president. So that would be a direct strategy of trying to communicate with President Kim. and each institution has their own methods of governance and their own leverage points and um, ways that are more or less effective to communicate and advocate for a certain position. So we would we would definitely our our policy team based in D.C. Um, is tasked with understanding what are the the leverage points um, and how to navigate those effectively. Very interesting and a, a complex. Uh, environment where you have to yes. constantly <laughs> redirect your strategy. And um, the political actors, of course, change because sometimes you'll have a, a relationship with a, um, a board of director from a certain country and then there's an election and then the mm-hmm. uh, delegate from that federal government uh, changes the leadership at that institution. So it's a constantly shifting puzzle to understand not just who is in charge, but what their interests are. Um, and, mm-hmm. and where they might be interested in um, advocating for a position that you might have. So that's it's a very, very challenging work of our policy department there. Lots of moving pieces. Yeah, definitely. And whether or not, uh, you know, a political actor is even interested in that kind of a that kind of an approach or if they prioritize these kind of policy um, remedies mm-hmm. must be quite a challenge. Well, 
Apart from the impact investment sector that you are now, you know, moving in, what are the next steps for Accountability Council? Uh, is this going to be the focus of the organization for the next few years, or are are you looking into expansion, maybe in other areas, um, mm-hmm. or what what can our listeners sort of expect from from sure. the organization? Sure. Well, impact investing is a part of our policy work. It is only a part, so we we do mm-hmm. need to keep focused on the system as a whole. So that that constant, diligent work of making sure that the existing accountability offices meet those best practice principles of independence, fairness, accessibility, et cetera, um, that work doesn't go away when we focus mm-hmm. on plugging a gap. Because if we are, are looking to keep best practice um, best, <laughs> we mm-hmm. can't. Yeah. look away while we focus on other areas. So that is the challenge, and that's the reason why we're expanding our policy team over the next mm-hmm. couple of years. We are also expanding our communities team to be able to respond to a greater number of requests for complaints, uh, support that we're getting from all world regions. We get complaints on a, a regular basis that we have to turn away due to lack of capacity or, or try to um, – urge other colleagues to help support those people. So we are growing our Africa office right now, um, and we have plans to grow regionally with attorneys from those regions, working in those regions, deeply networked with civil society groups to support those local and regional groups to incorporate this strategy effectively. Um, We also are building out our research team. As I mentioned, we're we're launching this major database, but we also do research and and kind of technological support uh, with um, our communities and policy teams, and that's that's a, a two-person team that also needs to grow. So over time, mm-hmm. what we see is being able to make progress on plugging some of these gaps. Chinese finance is another one where there's a tremendous amount of capital flowing into uh, marginalized, vulnerable communities where um, there is no commensurate uh, accountability for the impacts of that finance. That's another issue we're working on actively right now. Um, but then just keeping our existing program strong so that we can be of service to the communities who really rely on them to make change. Well, um, that just about wraps up everything we had to discuss today. But before we end this interview, could you let our listeners know ways uh, in which they can contact you, ways in which they can follow you? You mentioned this database. Will it be accessible to the public and where can they find right. it? Or any other information that can you know, connect you to more people who are interested in your work. Absolutely. I should mention we work with interns, law fellows, and policy fellows every semester and every summer. Mm-hmm. We've had um, many, many, many students work with us and have very substantive experiences integrating into our teams while they're here. So we welcome people to look at accountabilitycouncil.org, and it's C-O-U-N-S-E-L, like we are the legal counsel regarding accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, so accountabilitycouncil.org, we have have a page on our website where all of our opportunities are listed. It says work with us and you can join us there to look at the student and postgraduate fellow opportunities there as well as a careers page there. Um, we also welcome people to follow us on Twitter. That's where we, we put out a lot of our news. We'll put out our job postings there, but also what's going on with our, our communities, our policy and our research work. And it's at account council. Um, and we encourage people to sign up on our website for our newsletter. We have a newsletter that goes out every couple of weeks um, with information about what's going on in our cases and our work there as well in a little more depth than can, can fit into Twitter. So um, you can follow us on Instagram. There are a number of, of ways to engage and participate in the organization um, in all all manner. So we, we look forward to com- communicating with the Cornell community more 
And um, thank you so much for the chance to speak to you today. All right. Thank you so much, Natalie. This has been great. Good luck with your work. And we look forward to seeing what, uh, what Accountability Council will be doing in the next few years. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.